Hey there, community. I am Jason Rom, and I am your guest host today for Mr. Boo Lamb, who is out on assignment, and he is still in Canada, so they didn't let him leave Canada, but he's still there, and he's in Toronto this week for a Kube Huddle, and he is joining a couple other F5ers up there to talk about all things Kubernetes, which incidentally is what somewhat, somewhat what we're going to talk about today from a developer perspective, and we'll get there in a minute. But yeah, so so Boo is out, and so I get to play, and so hopefully I will not do too much damage to to the Boo brand here as as we get going. Aubrey, good morning, and Aubrey. Incidentally, I don't know why, but in backstage, if I turn my camera off here, and I'll just for, for the audience's perspective, as I stop my camera, all of a sudden my camera has Aubrey's mullet going on there. So Aubrey, wow. I, I assume that's you, right? It, it looks like if I de-age you a little bit, that's uh, that's what I get. But anyway, it was kind of odd. I, I, I took my camera off. I was like, why is my picture have Aubrey's face on it? So I'll leave the camera on so you know that it's me. And so anyway, Aubrey, good to see you. And Jose, welcome to the show. And oh, he's, he's showing some love out there to Aubrey's way. And yeah, rocking the mullet for sure. I, I had a I had a mullet for a little while in, in junior high. It wasn't very long. Like I didn't have it very long and it wasn't very long. And but yeah, I I, I went through that phase as well. So I'm I'm glad that's I'm glad that's gone most of the way. I have seen some mullets lately, so I don't know if they're coming back in or people just didn't get the memo. But anyway, well, I don't I don't want to delay too long because we have a fantastic, fantastic show for you. And so I'll introduce my guests, come on, and then and then we'll get into this. He's an author. He's a founder. He's an open source developer. He's got over three decades of experience in the industry. He's, I mentioned he's an author. He's written four books, actually. Three of them have been released. And I can show you his, his third book here, uh, Practical Debugging at Scale, Cloud Native Debugging in Kubernetes and Production. So if you want to go out and support him get out there grab that book and learn about practical debugging at scale I, I look forward to hearing about some of that as well and so without further ado i'll bring on my guest shy Amog. how are you shy hi jason i'm great how are you i am doing well i'm doing well so it's i i, had, I wrote an article a few weeks ago about it's a kubernetes world and i'm just living in it um, i went recently went through the certified kubernetes administrator thing just to trying to get myself my feet wet in the world and it's more from the it, more from the the devops perspective than the, the developer perspective but today we're going to we're going to look at some developer perspective and what that means for the for the world of logging so first just kind of introduce yourself and and then let, let's get into our key discussion about the world of logs so i've worked for quite a while Many companies, Sun Microsystems, Oracle, and lots of other companies, I worked as a consultant for decades. So that meant I worked for over 100 companies and did all sorts of things, worked on lots of different systems, founded a couple of companies, wrote lots of open source projects. And during that time, I one of the things, one of the skills that most differentiate me as a consultant was debugging and troubleshooting. Because when you come to a project that's unknown as a consultant and you sort of need to give value within four hours for a team of very technical people who spent 
years working on the project and you're suddenly the, that idiot outsider who think who thinks he knows more than they do and you you need something to sort of level up and debugging is sort of that skill that you can bring because universities don't teach it they don't really teach debugging because it's it's a very ephemeral skill you can't test it you you know when someone knows to debug, but you can't really verify that they know that. And there's so many hidden nooks and crannies in it. And logging is a form of debugging. It's sort of precognitive debugging, I call it. And it's when we write a log, when we decide what to put within a log, we sort of need to imagine the debugging situation that we'll have in the future. And a lot of logs I see are written in this form of, okay, we need a log here. So we write the log without any thought about the type of problem that we will need to resolve later on. And this at the development stage creates a cascading effect that later on impacts the DevOps, the SRE, and the entire ecosystem around it. And this is a large part of what I've been talking about. And uh, I initially didn't think I have that much to say about logs. My previous employer told me that they were running into problems with uh, lots of companies with logging and things related to that. And I said, I don't have anything to write about logging. And then I sat down and I wrote like 5,000 something words on logging alone, which I guess I do have something to say about anything, but, <laughs> but you know, I have a lot to say about logging. And there's one of the things that really bothered me there is pretty much every company I went to and as a consultant, as I said, I went to many companies and they all had a sort of coding standard that they aligned to the indentation and things like that. But very few had a logging standard, a sort of best practices for logging. So when I had to go through code reviews, when I suggested something or built something, they didn't have a metric that they could use to say, if I logged enough, if I logged too little, if I logged in the right way. And the thing is that logging, there's no one right thing, although there are lots of things that are better or worse, but there's trade-offs that we need to make. And a lot of these trade-offs are very challenging. And that, that's why I wrote a best practices article covering logging. And I didn't write it as this is the run, one true way to do logging because there isn't. Right. I sort of wrote it as a template so people can take it, fork my work and create their own sort of best practices documents for their organizations to get those benefits based on their specific needs. So let me, let me ask you, yeah, yeah. So let me ask a question about what, what makes for a good from a, on the development side, what makes for a good log statement? Cause I know like I'm, I'm not a full-time developer, but I do some Python stuff on the side. I do a little bit of Python for, for the community, but as I get further and further in, it's like you have your standard error messages and then you have the ability to create your own custom error messages to one, inform me, the developer, on what's going on. So it helps me to troubleshoot and get to a problem faster. 
but also, you know, for those who come behind you, those, those errors, like you mentioned, finding problems in logs at 2 a.m. And so what, what makes for a good log statement and what's maybe, maybe your top three tips for, for that? So there's a lot of things to pick from there, but first of all, I want to distinguish between a log and an error message. So you would log when you get an error. And one of the common mistakes that people do here is to log the error several times. And then you waste lots of times looking for the error because a person caught the error, wrote the log, then sent to generic error handling code. And that also writes the log, the log, and then he throws it further and another piece of code logs again, th that same error. And as eventually you look at the log and you see an error and you start checking that it's the same error again and again and again, and it's counterproductive. But errors are something that's just one part of the log. Because when you fail, usually the thing that you need from the log is how did I get here? And that's the value yeah. that the log can give you. And that typical debugging can't because that's something that happens in production and it happens after the fact. So lots of times a log will show things that you can't even reproduce. So having that sort of ability to go over that crime scene, you know, so to speak, <laughs> see a specific flow and understand what happened and what's the actual culprit at work here, that's the value of the log. It's not so much the error message, it's what led us to it. And to do that properly, there are several things that we need to do. And there's lots of tips. I'll pick a few because I don't want to spend all of the time talking about all the tips, but the first one is readable logs. One of the things that I do is schedule a weekly hour for myself to go over observability metrics for the company I'm working with. So at that point, I, first of all, I'd look at the dashboard and study it uh, once a week, at least. Now, obviously you should have it as your homepage, but I mean, actually go deep into the dashboard and understand what's going on, understand why the metrics are that way. And I then read logs. I actually go through them like they're a book and try to understand the flows that are happening in production. And if your log isn't readable, if you don't actually look at the log and understand what's going on, then there is a problem here because the SRE or you yourself, when you actually have to deal with it when at 2 a.m., as you mentioned, then it will be really painful. So it needs yeah. to be something that is readable, and that's the most important thing. And for readability, there's lots of things. It needs to be concise, but it needs to be unique and not just a couple of characters unique. So when you look at the log and you need to find the code that's re that relates to that log, you need to be able to not get the two lines confused because this is something that happens a lot. People copy and paste the log statements from one place to another, maybe change a couple of characters, but then you spend the time at 2 a.m. looking at the wrong line of code and not understanding how did it get here, what flow happened here. And do you do that with, do you do that with just like a, a keyword or, or do you do it numerically and have a config map somewhere to, to decouple that? So this very much depends on the situation there. Usually I, I try for the string to actually be unique and not actually go through keywords and unique values because that creates a sort of situation that's very hard for developers to maintain, but just 
the the goal is when you're reviewing something like that or when you're writing it, just grep the project with the string and try to find something similar and make sure that string isn't too short. If it's just one word or a couple of words, it's usually not enough to describe uniquely the, the log that you're writing. And lots of times the value of MDC also gives you enough context for a specific log. For those of you who might not be familiar, MDC is mapped diagnostic context, which is something that's 20 years old or so. And yet I've worked with lots of companies who don't incorporate it into their logs. And it's one of the most important and valuable things you can do. With an MDC, you can add context to all the logs. So for instance, you can add the URL that the user requested in the web request. And you can just add it automatically and then it will appear for all the different relevant logs. You can add the user ID as well. And that way you can find, narrow down a specific set of logs when user ID X requested URL Y and essentially get something narrow there. There are complexities obviously related to GDPR and things like that and privacy when you do log user IDs, of course, but still it enables you to find a specific flow. So if a user says, oh, I had a problem with this URL, you can actually find only the lines relevant to that particular user automatically. And map diagnostic context sort of solves that problem in a global way. And there's lots of things like that, that I think in the development stage, we myth. And because we don't do them in the development stage, we suffer later on in the production stage, at the DevOps and the SREs sort of carry the, the brunt of that mission. Okay. Yeah. So, so we, we talked before the show, it's like, they always talk about security. It's like, it's, it's so much more expensive after the fact to solve security problems. It's best to do that, shift it all the way left and and deal with it in development it sounds like even with things like mcd and or mdc right the even even solving problems like that best to do it up front so that you don't have to build complex tools after exactly. the fact yeah mm -hmm. and it saves money too right because overlogging having too many logs and, and not too much within a specific log i i've i've paid for a a, a splunk license before internally for for a project that I was working on. It, that's not cheap. Handling that amount of traffic per hour or whatever the license was, it's not cheap. So, I've seen estimates that pin the cost of overlogging at 30% of the total cloud expenses, which is insane. And I'd argue those are actually underestimates because I don't think they take into, the, into account the higher costs of the actual servers that log too much and then take up more CPU, more memory, more IO because of that. And lots of times you see that cache is missed because essentially you need to log and you're doing IO and you sort of put much more strain on the particular server instance and lose a lot of the advantage when, when you're doing overlogging. In my talk on the subject, I have a slide where you see a post from Reddit where a person asked if overlogging is an actual problem. And one of the first responses there was a person who said that they, a project that they had was hosted on a particular cloud provider, which I won't mention because it's not the fault of the cloud provider. They all have the same sort of problem. 
And their bill went to $100,000 within days just because of overlogging. And that's insane. That's, I understand why they did it, but it's, it's a problem that people need to be keenly aware of when deploying something to the cloud. And it gets much worse sometimes when people underlog, because lots of times I go to projects where there's literally no logging. And then you need to start adding logs and then redeploy, add logs, redeploy, and do that sort of thing. And I nicknamed that the CI/CD cycle of death, because <laughs> after the first few times, it's okay, but then you just you want to shoot yourself. It's just another deploy and, and go through that whole thing. And then finding the customer that was reproducing the problem and getting that person to reproduce it with the logs that you hope that are now okay. It's like, it's, it's a terrible experience. So all of these options are, uh, yeah, it's a DOS by logging. I, I 100% agree with you. It's, it's a difficult situation. But what you mentioned about security, Long4j, for instance, which is, it, it's still a thing all this yeah. time later, still trauma for lots of us. And we could have said, even with that vulnerability, if people would just sanitize their log data properly and actually use some tools that, because the tools warn you about using logging unsanitized variables, there's literal, literal warnings on that. So before Log4j, they existed in lots of vendors. So if people would have followed those best practices, we wouldn't have, Log4j wouldn't have been such a big problem. You know, it would have been a bug should have been fixed, but lots of people wouldn't have had an exploit because of that. So it's, it's really important. And also technologies like PII reduction, which is personal information, identifiable information. Loggers can detect things like credit card numbers and things like that and automatically strip them out even yeah. before they reach the cloud. And these sorts of technologies are available today. And because there's no standardization, people aren't aware that they should use these sorts of capabilities when they build projects with loggers. And it's a shame. It's, it's low hanging fruit. Yeah. Well, on that, on that note, since you were a consultant for so long, do you, do you find that, that the, the thought, not, not the thoughtlessness, but just the, the carelessness maybe a little bit of deploying things like that is, is really a, a, a wide spread enterprise problem, or is it more the kind of the startups and mom and pops shops that are, Hey, I just need my workloads out there. And so they're, they're, they're getting stuff out. They've, they've gone through the tutorials and they're releasing stuff, but it, it, do you find it's everyone or is it, is it more a, a smaller everyone. shop? It's everyone. Everyone. I've worked with banks and they, they're more square, but they're just as ignorant as some startups where I think RDD, resume driven design is more popular in startups because it's tolerated more in startups. And yeah. over there, I saw lots of times that attempt to pick technologies that aren't ready and do all sorts of adventurous, very imaginative architectures for all sorts of things that already had solutions that were production grade, but in enterprise, lots of times it's a matter of just people not caring 
uh, enough to actually learn and read about some things that they can do. And But overall, I'd say it's a universal problem for for everyone. The thing is, I don't blame them. Back then, I used to because I was much younger and there wasn't a lot of information. So I felt you could study all of that. Yeah. But now it's already, it's beyond the amount of things that you need to know in order to build even a simple solution is staggering. And in, in a sense, we went a bit backwards on some of these things because just the complexities of Kubernetes, as you mentioned, they're, they're tremendous. No yeah. one, I don't know Kubernetes properly. And I know some things very deeply there, but the thing is, as a DevOps, I'd be terrible because you need to practice in order to do something. And as many books as I can read, it won't make a difference unless I actually practice it. And I'm not a practicing DevOps. And yeah. this is a problem. We can't expect everyone to know things. And in a startup where you often don't even have a dedicated DevOps, it's really a problem when people start picking up all sorts of technologies like that for log ingestion and for everything, essentially, and create overly imaginative and often poorly reviewed approaches to solve these things. Yeah, there was a, a principle, and I don't know if this is a general industry principle or if it was specific in network engineering where my background is, but it was keep it simple, stupid, right? The KISS, KISS method. And it, 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 it feels like what you're saying is like we've gone backwards in, in some regards. I do feel like that with uh, the Kubernetes ecosystem, that it is so wildly complex that, that it's very easy to make mistakes, yeah. even if you are incredibly skilled. But for the rest of us who are just trying to get going, it, it's an absolute minefield to get things yeah. configured in a way that protects you from cost, from security, from the chaos monkeys that, that are going to come find you because you've missed a lot of cases that aren't so niche. And so it's, yeah, it, it's crazy out there. Yeah. And one thing that I think is really important about logging and this in general is that our profession is a team sport and we need more cohesiveness in the team. And this is true when we have logging and one developer logs a lot and another one logs too little and one logs in this way and one logs in that way and you end up with the unreadable log. But it's also true in terms of vertically integrated smaller teams. And that means that the DevOps is an inherent part of the team and that the whole flow to create a single application is, is more unified. And this speaks to the value of Kubernetes versus one of the benefits it has is that it lets us simplify our code significantly. We can create yeah. microservices, which are very simple, but this sort of shifts the complexity into Kubernetes and into DevOps. The complexity doesn't go away, it just moves to a different location. Yeah. And for the deployment and all of the different pieces that need to get all these all nicely orchestrated small services working nicely. And this is true for logging. At the moment, we have lots of different services and they all log in a particular way and, or in different ways. And you need to somehow ingest and follow and go through logging, tracing, and all of the different types of observability metrics that you have at your disposal. The complexity of solving a, 
a problem in that, that systemic rises significantly. And for that, you need a team that can help you travel through all of the different pieces that orchestrate together and find the, the specific problem. And it also means picking the right venue for your output. So for instance, where, when do we need to log, but when do we need a metric? Because lots of times I see people that do overlogging, they just use it as a compensation instead of using just a metric for a variable, which is yeah. usually the better solution in those cases. Okay. I want to come back to, before we wrap up here, one thing you were saying earlier is like you were, you were talking about staring at your dashboard and, and reading logs. It's like, what, what does a good transaction look like? And I think that's lost a lot. We'll, we'll do baselines for performance. We'll do baselines for security, but baselines for, for actual known good workflows. Even we'll do, we'll do baselines for availability, but, but doing baselines for known good workflows, I, I don't think I've ever heard that brought out. And so that, do that's something I think chaos. makes, yeah, yeah. People do engineering and they do game days and things like that, but they don't even know how to recognize a working system and don't hunt for problems within a working system. One of the things we do is I look at logs for builds that were successful. That means it ran the unit tests, it ran the integration tests, it ran everything and passed. And then I open the log of a passing integration and unit test. And I go through it and I see exceptions in the log. And these, I want to know why they are there. I need an explanation for that. And this is something people just don't do. And when we're talking overlock, CI logging also costs us quite a bit. Yeah. And that's also something that we need to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So uh, like uh, for your example of, of, of finding exceptions and passing logs, are you thinking things like on this particular unit test, it doesn't apply to this version. And so we're going to accept that from, is that the kind of exception you're, you're talking about in that? So there were cases where the, the exceptions were reasonable and they happened because of a system failure related to the unit test framework itself that wasn't necessarily indicative of a bug. But at least in some cases, we had tests that were flaky. That means they failed sometimes, but didn't fail other times. And we found out that they were caused by indeed a problem in the unit test environment that was misconfigured. And that created a situation that was visible in the passing logs. And when we went through that, we were able to see a problem that we wouldn't see in, in the failed logs because it was masked over there. So sometimes you would see a failure that is outside of the test that at this point, the test passed, but the failure still happened. Gotcha. And, and, and this is something that isn't rare in, in large systems. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, gosh, that was a very, very fast 30 minutes. I'm appreciative of your insights and, and I've, I've learned some things that really helped me, especially looking at baseline, everything logs, performance, whatever that that's great. And, and appreciate your expertise. I appreciate your time. Again, everybody go out practical debugging at scale available. You can get it probably more places than Amazon, but there's the Amazon link for you and make sure that you follow. Is anybody anywhere else that people should connect with you? You mentioned a blog. Do you have a, a blog that's on YouTube? I'm at debug agent on YouTube. Okay. I, 
I have lots of videos there and stuff like that. And the debugagent.com is also awesome. where, where I mostly write okay. a lot. All right. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. You have a nice evening there in Tel Aviv and hopefully we'll, we'll have you back one day. Hope to see you again. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Well, that was, that was like the fastest 30 minutes of a show I think I've, I've done in quite a while. So, um, learned a lot and hope you did too. And we will see you out there in the community this week. And then next week, again, we're back right here, 8.30 AM Pacific for Dev Central Connect. I don't remember if Boo's going to be back next week or if I'm back in the chair. Either way, one of us will be here and we look forward to it. So with that, I will bid you all adieu and have a great week. <laughs>